Lord, thank you so much for bringing us here today, God, for this time for us to be able to gather together to worship you, God, to honor you and give you our praise. And we thank you that we also can come together to seek you in your word. And we ask, Lord, that you would bless your word today, that you would speak to us through your word today, that you would make it alive right in front of our eyes, Lord, and that your Holy Spirit, Lord, would move upon us in a deep way. So we ask for your touch, we ask for your anointing, God, we ask for your blessing, in Jesus' name, amen. This uh, son came up to his father and said, Dad, I want to get married. Great, replied the dad, but first, tell me you're sorry. For what, asked the son. Say sorry, said the dad. But for what, what did I do, asked the son. Just say sorry, the dad came back. But what have I done wrong, asked the son. Say sorry. Why, the son said. Say sorry, the dad said. Please, the son pleaded. Just tell me why. The dad said again, say sorry. Okay, okay, said the son. I'm sorry. There, said the father, you finish your training. When you learn to say sorry for no reason at all, then you're ready to get married. <laughs> I thought that was a good one. Well, you can say you are sorry, but it doesn't really change anything until you really are sorry, right? Well, as we return to our study in the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul is touched by the true sorrow of the Corinthian believers, and in many ways, how they have changed. So the title of our message this morning is this, Godly Sorrow, Godly Responses. Godly Sorrow, Godly Responses. Our outline today is this, we're going to be uh, studying 2 Corinthians chapter 7 from verse 2 through 16. We're going to finish off the chapter here, do the whole chapter. But our outline is this. Number one, the concern. Number two, the correction. And number three, the confidence. So, godly sorrow, godly responses. Let's begin here with number one, the concern. The concern. Take a look with me here now. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 2. It says here, open your hearts to us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have cheated no one. We'll stop right there. Now, the Apostle Paul here is making another appeal to the Corinthian believers. He's saying, hey, open your hearts to us. Or, or open your hearts to me. In the ESV, I like how it translated. It says, make room in your hearts for us. So, Paul here is reaching out to the Corinthian believers to fully restore things between him and them. So Paul reassures them. He says, look, look, you guys, we have wronged no one. That means we, we've, we haven't treated anyone unjustly. We have corrupted no one. He says, you know, me, my team, we, we, we haven't influenced you at all to do evil. And then he said here in verse 1, we have cheated no one. In other words, we, we're not taking advantage of anybody here as we're talking about these things, as we come to you. So Paul's like, look, it's not like what the false teachers are saying. Keep an open heart toward me. 
So you remember, right? You remember how the false teachers have been attacking Paul's integrity, his credibility, his character, and they poisoned the minds of the Corinthian believers about Paul and about his team also. So he kind of says, we here. And last time when we were together, we saw Paul making the appeal to be open, right, in the same manner in verse 16 of chapter 6, about having an open heart to what he's saying. And then last time we saw about them separating themselves from unbelievers, about separating themselves from the false teachers to not be unequally yoked. And we saw that last time the title of our CD was Holiness Matters, our message last time. Especially now, we connect it back to that we are ambassadors for Christ. So here in chapter 7, Paul goes on to bear his heart even more now to restore their fellowship and to show his concern that he really cares about him, the concern and the love that he's always had for them. That's the heading of our outline, the the concern, the concern. Verse 3 now, he goes on, he says, I do not say this to condemn, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. So Paul goes on to reassure them, the Corinthian believers, he's not saying all of this. He's not coming at them to condemn them. He doesn't want them to be confused with the false teachers. And maybe they're making Paul out to be this real evil guy condemning them. But Paul's like, know this, he adds, you are in our hearts. You know what he's saying? He's saying, I love you guys. We love you guys so much. And, and look, we're, we're like committed to you no matter what may happen, no matter what persecution may bring. He says, I'm ready to die together. I'm ready to live together. That's my commitment in my relationship with you. No matter what, no matter what happens, even if you're confused by what the false teachers are saying, even if they're telling you these things and you're starting to believe that, Paul's saying, hey, look, I'm here to stay. You can see his heart just coming out here, right? Through thick and thin, Paul was going to stick this out. And continue to stay committed and love the Corinthian believers. C.C. Colton said, The firmest friendships have been formed in mutual adversity, as iron is most strongly united by the fiercest flame. I like that. Paul's, that's Paul. He's saying, I'm not cutting off this relationship just because we're going through this tough time. I'm not cutting it off just because you're wavering here. No, I'm sticking through This time, and you know, I'm going to even hold on even tighter because of my love for you. And you know what? It's because of that love of God flowing through him. Verse 4, he goes on, he says, Great is my boldness of speech toward you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am exceedingly joyful in our tribulation. All right, let's try and understand what Paul's saying. When Paul says, great is my boldness of speech toward you, he's saying, I freely, you know what, talk about you guys. I'm bold about talking about you. And he's not saying in a critical way here. It's not like, you know, those Corinthians, you know, the church over there, you know, those guys, you know what they did to me. And then he starts talking. No, that's not what it is. He says next here, great is my boasting on your behalf. I boast about you guys. I talk about you guys in this positive, positive way. 
Matter of fact, Paul goes on and he says, I'm filled with comfort. A better translation here is, is I am so encouraged by you. He says, I am exceedingly, the word exceedingly in the Greek here is super abundantly joyful about you guys. He's saying exceedingly joyful in all our tribulation. In other words, despite our tribulations, in spite the troubles with the false teachers, in spite the troubles with the persecution, in spite the troubles of the church. Remember back in 1 Corinthians, they were carnal or more worldly. Despite even the Corinthian believers wavering on their loyalty to Paul, he's saying, I still boast about you. I still concern about you guys. I still care about. Isn't that amazing here? Paul's heart was overflowing with agape, that unconditional love for even these messed up, unloyal Corinthian believers. Really, right here in these verses, we see lived out what 1 Corinthians 13, 7 says. Remember this? Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things things this is Paul here this is what he's bearing to the Corinthians what he's showing them saying to them right now look at verse 5 he says for indeed when we came to Macedonia our bodies had no rest but we were troubled on every side outside were conflicts inside were fears now Paul goes back to when he was in Macedonia. Remember, that's northern Greece area. And God had opened up this opportunity for him to preach the gospel. But also with that came all this trouble, all this persecution, all this stuff that came upon him. His team in those troubles found no rest, trouble on every side, conflicts, and, and, and there was fear on the inside of them. They feared for their life. Paul, in other words, was getting very discouraged with all that that was going on in Macedonia. So he's starting to tell this little story in what happened. A few months ago, I had this weird dream. And the dream was I couldn't find my wife. I looked and I looked and I looked all over. I think I was like at the park or, or like the county fair or something like that. And, and I just, it, it was distressing me. I was discouraging me. I was getting all bummed out, and, and I couldn't find her. And then I ran into another problem. The next problem, in this dream, I couldn't find the bathroom. I'm running around, couldn't find her. And no matter where I went, I, where's the bathroom? Where's the bathroom? Suddenly I woke up, and I jumped out of bed, and I had to go, she's really bad, right? And, but then I looked, and you know what? My wife was still there, so I was okay, right? Ever dream like that? Ever have those dreams? Well, you know what? Paul here, as he's talking about this incident in Macedonia, he wasn't dreaming. He did battle persecution. There was things going on. There was a problem going on. But on top of that, he was anxious about finding Titus. And that's what he's going to mention soon. They were supposed to meet. They were supposed to come together. Paul was supposed to meet him over there and then find out what's happening with the Corinthian believers in the church over there. Remember this. Remember all this we talked about back in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We learn how Paul had written another letter between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. And that letter is what commentators call the severe letter. 
Remember he went and visited the church. There was problems there. And when he left, it was on his mind. So he wrote this severe letter after 1 Corinthians. And in this letter, Paul confronted their sin, their pride, their, their selfishness, worldliness, their divisiveness. All this carnal, all this stuff that was going on. There was sin in the church. All this stuff that was going on that really they hadn't re really obeyed Paul after he had sent the 1 Corinthian letter. Basically, they ignored it all. So Paul had sent Timothy with this letter to the church of uh, Corinthians over there with this severe letter and then Timothy was on his back to bring him the news of well what happened what happened to them what they think of the letter so Paul was anxiously waiting to hear what happened with their response from the second letter that when he sent his assistant Titus had carried in over there at the church so Paul is waiting for the report back he's in Macedonia they got a chance to preach but there's all this problem going on so what happened Look at verse 6. Nevertheless, God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Verse 7. And not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you when he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice even more. Okay, so what happened? Well, Paul writes, even though, look, we were going through so much in verse 6, he wrote, he said, nevertheless, God who comforts the downcast, the downcast is the discouraged, the depressed. He said, you know what? God comforted us. How? God encouraged us by the coming of Titus. So Paul, wondering, hey, what's going on? Also wondering, is Titus okay? I mean, we don't see him, and it was dangerous back then, but to see Titus, when they met, seeing that he was okay, that comforted that uh, Paul. And not only was it finally seeing Titus, but also, he said, by the consolation, that means encouragement, that Titus himself was comforted by you guys. That even Titus was welcomed by you guys. He, he was blessed by you guys. And then... First of all, on top of that, Paul is saying, he told us of your earnest desire. In other words, the Corinthian believers actually longed to see Paul. And think of Paul. He's wondering, what's going on? How did they receive the letter? What's going on in them? Paul was glad they didn't hate him. They weren't mad at him. And then the other thing, he, he rejoiced over this, your mourning. What is that? They're mourning over their sin that was confronted. In other words, they were really sorry about what they were doing. And then Titus shared your zeal for me. Paul's heart was overjoyed with this. He rejoiced even more that the Corinthians' loyal love for Paul was still there. So you see the concern that Paul had about them. The concern for their response and reaction to the letter was changed to joy with this encouraging news that came from Titus. It changed everything, especially while they're going through these problems. Proverbs 25, 25 says, Like cold water to a thirsty soul, it is good news from a far country. I kicked my uh, bottom. 
So the concern was overwhelming. But just, this, here's our point, but just when Paul's heart needed it the most, God sent the encouraging news about the Corinthians. Just when Paul's heart needed it most, God sent the encouraging news about the Corinthians. I like what an old Christian author, William Arthur Ward, once wrote. He said, flatter me and I may not believe you. Criticize me and I may not like you. Ignore me and I may not forgive you. Encourage me and I will not forget you. That's Paul. He was so encouraged. It was just what he needed. Right at the right time, Paul's heart, what he needed most, God sent the encouraging news about the Corinthians. This is what he's telling him. This is what he's saying here. Remember those moments when God has someone just right there at the right time, at the right moment, say the right thing, right? We never forget that. Think about it this way. Don't you want to be that person, right, that says that right thing right at the right moment, right? At the right time. You know what? We need to be listening for the voice of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit will prompt us in those right moments. Are you listening to the voice of the Spirit? Do you hear maybe what the Spirit's saying? But maybe you're not saying what you're prompted to say. Watch out for that too. Or we could look at it another way. Perhaps your words are more of the condemning type, the critical type. Is that really the Lord? I want to be cold water to a thirsty soul. And that's what Paul received from Titus. Just when Paul's heart needed it the most, God sent the encouraging news about the Corinthians. Think about someone once said, for every critical comment we receive, it takes nine affirming comments to even out the negative effect in our life. Something to think about. Let's go on here now. Number two, the correction. The correction. Number one, we see the concern. And now number two, the correction in this godly sorrow, godly responses study. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8. It says, for even... If I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you, have, you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. Now, Paul talks about this severe letter. That's what he's, 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 he's referring to right now. Which, again, we, we don't have this, but it's this letter between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. And what he's saying, he does not regret sending that epistle, that letter there, even if it made him sorry, meaning even if it made him sad to send it. Though at first Paul did regret it, in other words, it was hard for him, but he knew that it would only be for a little while for these guys. So Paul did not enjoy writing that severe letter, sending that letter. But he said, he's basically saying it had to be done for their sakes. Let me ask you parents, does it give you joy to discipline your children? I mean, what parents find pleasure, right, in making your child sorrowful 
in, in discipline, making them cry. No, no parent does, right? None of us enjoys giving punishment, but it is out of love and knowing that it will help stop sin that we give that discipline. So this is what Paul, this is what he's talking about with the Corinthian believers, you know. I, I didn't like sending the letter, but I had to. At first, I kind of didn't want to. Reg- I was sad about it. I regret it. But you know what? I knew this was important because he cared for them. Then Paul says he does rejoice, though. Not so much that they were made sorry, but that, I like this, your sorrow led to repentance. I like that in verse 9. But that your sorrow led to repentance. What's repentance? You guys know. It means change of direction, right? It means doing a 180, a U-turn concerning your sin, concerning disobedience. Well, Paul says that kind of sorrow is being sorrow in a godly manner. In other words, grieving over your sin that it leads you to change your life. Being so sorrowful, so sad, so much, it leads you to stop doing what you're doing, to turn around, to do that 180. 180. And then Paul says the Corinthian believers suffer loss from us in nothing. What, what is that? In other words, in reality, Paul's saying, the Corinthian believers did not suffer any damage from Paul. No, this worked out for them to turn around, to stop sinning. It worked out for the good. See, Paul's letter was the correction that brought a painful sorrow that turned them around. In talking about the Lord's discipline, Hebrews 12, 11 says, Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. It always is, right? Nevertheless, it goes on in Hebrews 12, 11. Afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So that's what Paul's talking about here. If there's any kind of sorrow that they have, if there's any kind of sorrow to have, it's this kind of sorrow. It's the sorrow that we grieve so much over, over our sin, with what we did, that we want to be done with it. That's godly sorrow. And that's what he says in verse 10. He says, for godly sorrow. That's what he's calling there. It's this real sorrow, grief that turns around. And he says, for godly sorrow produces repentance. Out of it comes this turnaround. Out of it comes this 180. And then he adds, leading to salvation. Not to be regretted. You're not going to re- regret that. It's not going to be a loss. and Not at all. Then he adds this in verse 10. But the sorrow of the world produces death. This is so straight and clear, you guys. The godly sorrow, right? Painfully grieving over your sin that it results in a person doing a 180, taking action in repentance. Then that's what really leads to salvation, right? Because we go to Jesus, it means we turn from sin, turn to Jesus, we get forgiveness of the sin, we find the, the, the freedom, he frees us from the bondage of sin, we find that salvation. He says, that, that, that's the kind of sorrow you want, godly sorrow. Going through that sorrow, you're not going to have any regrets. But on the other side, the sorrow of the world only produces death. Death, he's talking about uh, divine judgment for your sin. And that means eternal hell. 
So Paul's saying, look, there's a sorrow that brings a course change, but the other affects no change. Worldly sorrow doesn't turn you around, doesn't bring you to Jesus. It's the godly sorrow, the, the grief over your sinning that brings you to Jesus. John MacArthur put it this way, the sorrow of the world, remorse, wounded pride, self-pity, unfulfilled hopes, has no healing power, no transforming, saving, or redeeming capability. I like that. So think about it this way. Remorse is not repentance. Remorse is only being sorry for what you did, but it's not being sorry enough to turn and stop. That's remorse. Repentance is you're sorry enough to quit what you're doing and turn from sin and turn to Jesus. So the correction Paul is talking about in this letter, he sees this result. And this is our point here. Godly sorrow brings true repentance, but worldly sorrow only brings remorse. This letter he sent out, there are certain reactions. And there's only, only two re reactions here. Godly sorrow brings true repentance, but worldly sorrow only brings remorse. I read about a little two-year-old who liked to play in the water inside the toilet. To him, it was great. A bucket of water that was always full, right? Well, mom didn't want that, right? So... When mom would find him, he'd slap his hand and tell him that that was not to be done. He would cry. He would say, I'm so sorry, mommy. But the next time he got a chance, he was back playing in the toilet again. You can say the little boy had remorse, right, when his mom caught him. Remorse when his hand got slapped because that was painful. But it wasn't repentance. Why? Because he still went back to the toilet again. Godly sorrow brings true repentance, but worldly sorrow only brings remorse. What kind of sorrow do you have when you sin? Do you grieve over it? Do you grieve enough to stop? Is it that kind of sorrowful, godly sorrow kind of repentance? Or is it, is, is it just this remorse? Oh, but then you go back. Is it a remorse that maybe you, you got caught? Is it a remorse that, oh, it caused this inconvenience and this, but it wasn't real repentance. Is it remorse or repentance? Where are you at? Is it, is it a sorrow that you went against the God who loves you? Are you still going back to the toilets of the world? It's a way to look at it. Now, Paul expands on what you what, what, you, what he is seeing here with the Corinthian believers on what real godly sorrow is about, about repentance. And he expands on that even more here in this next verse. Look at verse 11. He says, For observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you. What clearing of yourselves. What indignation. What fear. What ve vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication, in all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. So Paul begins here in verse 11, he says, for observe, like see what kind of response he's saying. 
Look at this response that comes out of repentance. When, when you guys have sorrowed in a godly way, look, look at what comes out. And, and in this way, he sees what's going on with the first Corinthians here. That they truly had godly sorrow. And with this godly sorrow comes these responses. Now, Paul's going to list here, and we're going to put this up on the screen too to make it easier. But Paul's going to list eight responses that come out of godly sorrow. And this is what we find here in verse 11. Eight responses that come out of godly sorrow. So first of all, we see a new determination to not sin no more. Godly sorrow brings a response of, number one, a new determination to not sin anymore. So the first thing Paul says here, he says, what diligence it produces. Diligence here means earnestness. It means a seriousness to no longer disobey the Lord, to no longer disobey His Word and go against Him. See, it's one thing to do a 180, change direction, but it's another thing to stay in that direction, right? So what happens, a godly sorrow, the response to that, in real repentance, you're going to have someone with a new de determination to stay in the direction of Jesus and not sin anymore. One pastor said, repentance means we love our Savior more than we love our sin. And I like that. I think that's a motivation. Because in a way, we're tempted because we, we desire that sin. We like that sin, right? But in true repentance, our response now with godly sorrow, we're going to say, no more. I'm determined to do that no more. I, I turned around, and I love Jesus more than my sin. And I'm going to do it for that reason. Number two, he says a new uh, admission of your sin. A new admission of your sin. Godly sorrow brings a response of a new admission of your sin. Next, Paul says these two words. What clearing of yourself. He says what clearing. Clearing means to answer for your, yourself or plea. That's what it literally means in the Greek. But in other words, Paul saw the Corinthian believers wanting to clear their name and prove they changed. They made sure all who knew of their sin knew of their repentance. So it's this new admission of your sin, saying, saying yeah, I did this. And that's part of the repentance. And that's a response in the godly sorrow. It's like I, I knew someone who, who uh, called and wrote everyone they have wronged, asking for forgiveness after they received Jesus. That's true re repentance, you guys, in a person. That's showing that. They admit their sins, take responsibility, and go and seek forgiveness. Number three we see here is a new reaction towards sin. A new reaction towards sin. Godly sorrow brings a response of this new reaction towards sin. Next he says, what indignation. Indignation means to be angry. Yeah? To, to, not, uh, uh, to be upset. The idea really is to hate that sin in your life. What once was cherished is now loathed. It's hated now. Psalm 97 verse 10 says, You who love the Lord hate evil. The psalmist was right. If we really love the Lord, we're going to hate the sin. We're going to hate the evil. It's going to be the opposite, even as I mentioned earlier. 
All right, godly sorrow brings a response of, number one, a new determination to not sin anymore, a new admission of your sin, number three, a new reaction toward your sin, and number four, a new consideration for the holy God. A new consideration for the holy God. Then Paul writes, what fear. In other words, what respect you guys have. What honor, reverence you guys have for the holy God. To not sin before him anymore. With real repentance, we're concerned about what? Honoring God. We're concerned about reverencing. We live in the fear of God in all of our conduct. That's what Paul is saying. We have this new consideration, right, for this holy God that we live before now. Paul just con contrasted, right, godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Well, think about worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is more concerned about your own state, about me, what I want, what, what's good for me, right? Perhaps, yeah, you get grieved if you're caught. Oh, man, I got caught. Yeah, because you can't do your thing no more. Or perhaps maybe your, your, your pride is hurt. Oh, no, I got, oh, oh, they're going to think this, yeah, about me, right? Or maybe because maybe the consequences hurt you or you've been shamed. It's all me, 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 right? But godly sorrow puts the focus not on self but on honoring God. And that's what Paul is saying. This godly sorrow brings this response of a new consideration for the Holy Lord God. Number five, a new devotion to love God and others. A new devotion to love God and others. Godly sorrow brings this kind of response. Next he lists this. What vehement, I can't say that, huh? Ve vehement, ve vehement. I don't know, my Japanese, the E's are the other way. But vehement desire. What vehement desire? It speaks of this deep, flowing desire. But it's not this weird, evil desire, but it's this godly desire he's really talking about. Sin in your life makes you selfish, but Jesus in your life gives you this love. This deep love. And, and, and this is this new devotion now. You have this love toward God and you have this love toward others. I mean, think about what blessed Paul so much was to hear from Titus that the Corinthian believers desired to see Paul. After all that went on, after this letter that he sent, rather than wanting to stay away from Paul, right, because of this letter, or, or, or because he said these things, oh, I'm not going to be around him. They wanted to be with him. And look, Paul, rather than cutting the ties with the Corinthians, you guys, you did it again. I sent you one letter, yeah? Then I go visit you. You didn't obey that letter. You're still doing the same things. Forget it. I'm walking away from you guys. No. Instead of cutting the ties of Corinthians, he also longed to be with them. You see, a true godly sorrow and a true repentance produces this kind of love. So godly sorrow brings a response of a new devotion to God and love others. Number six is a new passion for holiness and purity. A new passion for holiness and purity. Godly sorrow brings that kind of response. Paul then lists this. He says, what zeal? Now, he refers to this zeal 
to grow in godliness. A burning fire to live before God in a right way. And so there's this passion now to live before the Lord in holiness and purity before Him. It's not just turning away from saying, okay, I'll be okay. And generally, all right, no more of that stuff. Yeah, Maybe, maybe like you get one thing. That's that you really bad, and you turn from okay, no more 180. I repented, but you get all the other things, yeah. And you think, well, I'm okay because I never I, I took care of the really bad stuff, and you allow this other stuff. No, what happens in godly sorrow, you start looking at everything in your life, and so now you have this new passion to be more godly, to, to be, have more purity in your life. I think about that old song uh, that sometimes we sing, Refiner's Fire, right? The second verse is, purify my heart, cleanse me from within, and make me holy. Purify my heart, cleanse me from my sin, deep within. I love those words. And then the chorus, we know, Refiner's Fire, my heart's one desire is to be holy, set apart for you, Lord. I choose to be holy, set apart for you, my master, ready to do your will. Number seven, we see Paul here, godly sorrow brings a response of number seven, a new conviction, a new conviction to what is just and what is right. Paul says, what vindication here in verse 11. Now, vindication literally is in the Greek here is giving justice. So, the idea here is a truly repentant believer will hold strongly yeah, now to their moral conscience. They're committed to justice, and even if that means their own sin. In other words, this means this. Instead of excuses, instead of protecting yourself, repentant believers accept their own consequence. God is just. I deserve this justice. And, and, and what is right is right. What is wrong is wrong. I'm, and if there's justice, then I have this new conviction about that. Someone said the worst sinners are sometimes those who feel the least sinful. That's a good one. Something to think about. But when you truly stop the excuses and see yourself for what you are, that's when your eyes are open to see the truth. All right. Number eight, the last one here. Godly sorrow brings a response of a new transformation into a different person. A new transformation into a different person. Something happens when you're truly sorrowful and grieving over your sin. When you truly have this godly sorrow. When you truly do the 180 turn. When you truly do all this. Paul saying, hey, something has happened to you. And he says here, the Corinthian believers here in verse 11 have proved themselves to be clear in verse 11. Clear meaning to prove themselves to be pure or innocent in that way that no one can accuse them of really not repenting, right? He's saying they really had godly sorrow. Everyone could see that they, they really repented here. The idea really is with everything that is listed here, this basically describe how the Corinthian believers had godly sorrow, truly repented, and they have these responses. 
You can see in them, Paul is saying, you can see, I can see a new determination to not sin, a new admission of your sin, a new reaction toward your sin, a new consideration for the holy God, a new devotion to love, a new passion for holiness, a new conviction to what is just said. And this is this transformation that I see in you. That is what Paul rejoiced about, this changed life. So the correction of the Lord made some new Corinthians. They weren't the same no more. And everything that we saw here in these eight responses, that's what makes you a changed person. That's what proves that, well, this guy really repented. Let me ask you this morning, can you see these responses coming out of your repentance? If not, you should question yourself, is this a truly godly sorrow? Or maybe it's a worldly sorrow. Is it really in your heart to really change? Is it? Is it what you want? Is it what you desire? I don't know. I do. And I do my best to, in these eight responses to do these things. If you do, then people will see there's a real change that's going on when you really stop and show these responses. I love this story. I've shared this before in, in, in the years, but I love this story. During the Korean War, some soldiers stationed there hired a local Korean boy to cook and clean for them. Being practical jokers, these guys took advantage of the boy like smearing Vaseline on the stove handle so he'd get grease all over his fingers when he went to cook. Or they put little water buckets over the door so he'd get water all over him when he opened it. They even nailed his shoes to the floor one night. Day after day, the guy took the brunt of their practical jokes without saying anything. No anger, no blame, nothing at all. This finally got to the guys, these men. They felt super guilty about what they were doing. So in true repentance, they turned from their sin. They apologized to the Korean boy, vowing to change and never take advantage of him like this anymore. Seemed like truly godly sorrow there. Well, it seemed too good to be true, so the houseboy made sure. And he asked them, no more sticky on stove? No, said the man. No more water on door? No, replied the man. No more nails, shoes to floor? No, never again, reaffirming their heart. Okay, the boy said with a smile, then no more spit in soup. <laughs> I love that story. <laughs> I guess it goes all around here. Both sides, both sides need godly sorrow and godly responses. Well, let's move on here to number three, our last heading. The confidence, the confidence. Godly sorrow, godly responses. Number one, we've seen the concern. Number two, the correction. Now number two, the confidence. Verse 12, Therefore, although I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong, nor for the sake of him who suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. So Paul writes, therefore, or, or he's really saying, understand that even though, look, I wrote, that letter to you, that severe letter. You know, it wasn't for the sake of him who did wrong. Or it wasn't for the one who suffered the wrong. 
Paul did not write that to target those individuals. But he says, in the sight of God or before the Lord, I wrote to really confront the whole church in dealing with situations like this, which he's saying actually shows my care for all of you. Paul's letter was not to single anyone out to shame them, but to exhort the whole church. Now, we don't know exactly what the situation was. I mentioned that back in 2 Corinthians 2. Back in chapter 2, we saw that it could have been this guy, maybe he, he took a stance, maybe it was a leader who took stance publicly and, and, and went with the false teachers and began to attack Paul and all. It could have been something like that. Or maybe it was, it was like the guy in 1 Corinthians who was sleeping and living with his stepmother and the Corinthian church was like okay with that, allowed that to go on. But either way, Paul wrote the letter to the whole church with care, with concern, with love, so that they would deal with that problem, those problems, and all their issues. Verse 13, Therefore we have been comforted in your comfort, and we rejoice exceedingly more for the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. So he goes back to how he is so encouraged by the news he got from Titus. In other words, Paul's saying, You can see now all this has resulted in me finding comfort in your comfort. We've been encouraged by how you guys have been encouraged. Titus, how he was, and how you gave him joy. And then he says, we all, we rejoice exceedingly. There's that word again, super abundantly. Because Titus was refreshed. He was blessed by meeting you guys, being with you. And, and, and that he never found any resistance, but all he found was love. So this letter resulted in, in, through this true repentance to be a blessing and joy for everyone. J. Vernon McGee said, this has been God's comfort in the heart of Paul. He says it again because he's just so blessed and encouraged by this. That Paul was so relieved. God has worked through the letter and the Corinthian church has responded in the right way. Just keep that in mind. Verse 14. For if in anything I have boasted to him, that's Titus, about you, I am not ashamed. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, even so in our boasting to Titus was found true. Verse 15. And his affections are greater for you as he remembers the obedience of you all. How with fear and trembling you received him. What's Paul saying here? He's saying when Paul sent Titus out with the letter, he boasted about the Corinthians like they are really saved. They are true believers. So they will respond to what the Spirit is saying in this letter. Paul was not ashamed, he's saying, for the Corinthians did respond to the truth, and what Paul boasted to Titus was found true. So now in verse 15, Paul's saying the affections of Titus are greater for them. His heart is warmed in how they were received, because Paul says, they're going to get it. They're going to receive it. It'll, it'll be okay. Really, go, Titus. Go. And so even Titus was blessed in all this. And how they accepted the message in obedience with fear and trembling, with honor and respect, meaning with humility and submission here. Paul's joy com comes from how the Corinthian believers, as true believers do, reverently receive the message from Titus as from the Lord. Now, Remember I said he was worried 
How's the response going to be? He was waiting to meet up with Titus to find out. Yeah, he's worried. Will they receive it this time? They didn't do it the letter. Yeah. He went there. They didn't do it then. He, and the first, I mean, first Corinthians letter, he went there. They didn't there. He sent this other letter. He's worried. He's anxious. He's concerned for them. But at the same time, he knew that they would at some time, if not this time, because they were true believers. Because in the letter, it was God speaking to them. What Titus carried in that letter was the Holy Spirit's message to them. Speaking about scripture, 2 Peter 2.20 says, For prophecy never came by the will of man, but the holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And so here's the Corinthians responded, as true believers do, in conviction and submission in this godly sorrow and true repentance to what Paul had written in that severe letter. So then verse 16, our last verse, Paul says, Therefore I rejoice that I have confidence in you in everything. So he wraps all this up in this section. He says, so in all of this that's happened, I rejoice. I am so filled with joy. You know what? That I have complete confidence that in everything, no matter what happens to the Corinthians, no matter what spiritual challenges, no matter even what the false teachers, no matter what the world may try and do, he says, he rejoices that these Corinthians, the tr they are true believers and they'll make it through and do the right thing. A group of neighbors were standing in front of a house on their street that had just burned down to the ground. And as they watched the smoldering ashes, they felt bad for the family that lost all their possessions. I'm sorry, you heard. Oh, me too. I feel so bad. There were all kinds of comments like that going on. Then one of the neighbors spoke up and says, you know what, I got $500. I'm sorry, $500 worth. How about you guys? I like that. See, to be sorry is one thing, but to be sorry and do something about it shows how much we care. And the Corinthians showed that they cared about what their sin did to God. So you know what, they did something about it. It was godly sorrow, and it was a godly response. Repentance and it was godly response. They did the right thing as real believers do. And that's Paul's confidence. That's the confidence he had in them. That with the response, he's like, yeah, I knew it. These guys are believers. They're really going to respond in this way to God. Because this is God moving and God is in them. They're really saved. So our last point is this. This is that confidence that Paul had in them. Our last point is the response to the letter God had Paul write showed the Corinthians were real believers. The response or responses to the letter God had Paul write showed that the Corinthians were real believers. You know, I think about this in this manner. It's been the prayers and effort of my wife and I to do all we can for our three children that they would have Jesus in their hearts. That by the time they grew up as adults, that they would have Jesus. And what I mean is a true and saving faith, where they're really saved, not just, oh, they prayed a little prayer when they were three years old. You know, No, where they're, where they're really showing fruit 
of their faith, of their salvation in Jesus and how they live. Because it's this, I knew if they really had Jesus, I mean really saved, no matter where they go, no matter where they end up in life, no matter what, they would be okay. Because God would be in their life. God would take care of them. And you know what? God would grow them. Yeah? God would work in their life. God would convict their hearts. God would reach out to them. God would do all that he can right, to bring a believer back to the fold. God would grow them. God would do all the, the, that he can, can so that they would be believers who love God's word, believers who love to worship God, believers who love fellowship, believers who love to serve the Lord, believers who love Jesus himself. And I know if they are, re if they are real believers, no matter what, if they stumble, wayward, backslide, they're going to come back. They're going to come back and do what is right because they're true believers. And that's the confidence I have in God to work in His children. These are His kids, just like we are His children. And He doesn't let us go. He keeps reaching out to us, right? He keeps, he keeps after us, right? Because He loves us. And if we're truly saved, He's going to pull us back in, you guys. Let me ask you today, have you been backslidden? Have you wandered from God? Have you gone back into the world? Are, are you compromising with what you know to be wrong? Well, it's time to do the right thing. It's time to come back to God and truly repent. And I know you hear this. I know you feel this because the Holy Spirit is moving and speaking through His Scripture right here, through the Word, through God's Word. And He's real. And if you're really a saved person, the Holy Spirit is there. The Holy Spirit is in you. You have this connection. You don't want to grieve Him again and again by rejecting His call. Have you been confronted with something? Have you been convicted of something? How will you respond? With worldly sorrow? Or a godly sorrow? Will you take that step and turn from sin? Will you truly do the works of repentance? And will others see a godly response or godly responses? I want to close with something a Richard Cardinal Cushing said. He wrote this. If all the sleeping folks will wake up and all the lukewarm folks will fire up and all the disgruntled folks will sweeten up, and all the discouraged folks will cheer up, and all the depressed folks will look up, and all the strange folks will make up, and all the gossiping folks will shut up, and all the dry bones will shake up, and all the true soldiers will stand up, and all the church members will pray up, and if the Savior of all will be lifted up, then we can have the greatest revival this world has ever known. Amen? Well, then let us bring about a revival, you guys, and show the world around us our godly sorrow comes with godly responses. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much, Lord, for your word today. God, thank you for speaking. And God, as we're convicted and stirred up of our sin, 
God, stir us up out of apathy, Lord. Stir us up, God, with a passion and fire to live for you, to be concerned about holiness and purity in our life, to, to be concerned about honoring you, our holy God, to, to live a transformed life, to not just say, I'm okay because I dealt with the big sins, but to really go deep in those small sins, to take action, to do something, to truly be repentant in all these things, Lord. God, we want to live for you, and we want a revival to go on, but it starts with us right now. Each one of us, as the one person said, if you want a revival, draw a circle and then stand in that circle and start right there. Lord, the revival starts right now, right here with ourselves, with me. So, Lord, forgive us our sins, Lord. Help us, God, to turn, to leave them behind, to live the new life, freed, Lord, no longer slaves, no longer in bondage because you died and rose again from the dead. And now we can make a choice to yield ourselves, no longer to be slaves of unrighteousness, but now we can be slaves of righteousness. Thank you, Jesus, for that. And we know that the truth will set us free. And Lord, the truth of what you have done will set us free. And now we have the ability, and now you are here, God, to help us. Now we have your strength. Now we have your Holy Spirit. And may your Spirit fill us right now, God. Baptize us, Lord. Anoint us that we may live free from those sins and walk out of here in victory, Lord. Overcomers, Lord. Lord, here we are. Waiting for you, God. Fill us, Lord. Help us. In Jesus' name, amen.